When you first land overseas, what do your head and your heart try to tell you? But abroad, all my senses are on, and I'm trying to respond to everything around me. And I like that self. That's one reason I'm sure you travel and I travel. Coming up, Pico Wire explains what informs his style of writing. Julian Sankton investigated the harrowing realities of the earliest polar explorers from just over 100 years ago. His own voyage to Antarctica helped him grasp the immensity of what they had to endure. It was large, flat, gray, extended all the way to the horizon. It was almost like a Martian landscape. Or go back 500 years to imagine the first contact between Renaissance Italy and Mughal India. That's what Salman Rushdie does in The Enchantress of Florence. That interaction between the great sphere of public events and the small, intimate sphere of private life, you know, that's been something I've always been interested in. Explore travel writing from some of the best on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves' Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. One of the delights I've found in hosting this program is in meeting fellow writers who guide us into new places and experiences around the world, and even back in time. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, Julian Sankton investigates the horrors that the crew of a pioneering expedition to Antarctica had to endure when they were grounded in ice for the winter. And we'll talk with novelist Salman Rushdie to hear how he explored the first contacts between the worlds of Renaissance Florence and Mughal India. Pico Iyer has long been one of our favorite writers to talk with. He has a real knack for getting at the heart of what motivates us to travel. Here's a conversation we had with Pico just prior to the pandemic, which is airing here for the first time. For me, a travel writer goes places, learns, and then shares his experiences in a way that inspires us to venture to that destination ourselves in a more thoughtful way. Good travel writing celebrates our world and inspires us to engage with it. And for me, Pico Iyer is the model of a great travel writer. Pico joins us now to get us up to date on his work and to talk about his craft. Pico, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. So, Pico, did that make sense to you, or, or what would you? Is that kind of to you what a travel writer is? Yes, I, well, I was flattered by your introduction. I think a travel writer is somebody who longs to put a face and a voice to what is otherwise an abstraction, so that we're not just talking about Iran or Cuba and thinking about their governments and their policies. We're actually seeing the breathing human complicated lives in those places. And I sometimes tell myself, as you know better than anybody, that no generation in history before mine has had the chance to travel the world as some of the fortunate among us do now. So it would be a crime to waste or not make the best use of that opportunity. So now you endeavor to raise the bar and do that, where a lot of travel writers, how do you spend, you know, 48 hours in Budapest or something like that? It's uh, fast and, and, you know, internet style. What is, what is your thought about the whole reality of travel writing these days? It seems like it's different than we started you know, 20, 30 years ago. I worry it's more about consumerism and less about curiosity. And it's more about restaurants and shops and hotels, as you were saying, and less about getting to know the other. And I think I travel in order to be unsettled and surprised and confused and faced with things I don't know what to do with. 
So I don't necessarily want to go to the most expensive restaurant when I arrive in Paris. I want to get lost in a back street in Paris and and absorb a Frenchness I could never taste when I'm in Japan or California. That's pretty fundamental. You know, are you helping people be settled or are you helping them be unsettled? I think these days a conventional travel writer might be helping people be settled. And maybe that's part of our culture these days is we're afraid to be unsettled. Yes, and I think I, you know, I'm lucky enough to spend some of my time in California and some of my time in Japan. And so those are very comfortable, protected, affluent places. So when I choose a destination, I want something as different as possible, sometimes a very difficult place. Or sometimes I'll go to a place like Jerusalem, which is charged and intense and difficult, but endlessly fascinating. Mm. And I sometimes tell myself that a madman on the street shouting out things can sometimes be more interesting than a supermodel. <laughs> In other words, at a place like Jerusalem, where there's a lot going on and you can't really get your mind around it, may be more interesting than a beautiful beach where you're mm. just lying down and enjoying tequilas <laughs> by the turquoise waters. Um, and I think I feel that I come back from a place like that really transformed in a way that I don't always from a beach vacation. Yeah. And I think the other thing I notice, and, and you know this well too, is that wherever I go, if I'm in Tibet or Burma or Cuba, the people I meet there long to visit the United States, but they'll never have the chance to do so. And so I, I feel it's up to us who are lucky enough to have the freedom and the means to travel to go and visit them, to take the initiative, to start the dialogue, because they can't do that. Hmm, that's a beautiful idea. I, you know, I like to come home and help people who don't want to travel or who can't travel enjoy the value of travel through my reporting. At the same time, when we travel, we, I always feel like when we go to a distant country that might be at odds with our country politically, when we go there, it makes it tougher for their propaganda to dehumanize us because they've actually met somebody from our culture. And when I go home, it makes it tougher for our country to dehumanize them with our propaganda. Word for word, what I feel. I feel I feel that so keenly. And I sometimes worry that in the age of information, where actually we know less about the rest of the world than ever before, and we're at a greater distance. And I know some of my friends talk about safety, and I point out to them that I'm in this extremely privileged, beautiful town of Santa Barbara. My house burnt down. I was mm. stuck in the middle of a forest fire for, for three hours. And every now and then there are terrible acts of violence in Santa Barbara that make it, for a few days, one of the murderous, most murderous places on earth. And so many Many of the places I visit are much safer, probably, than, than the United States. Yeah, that's why I say bon voyage instead of have a safe trip. Pico Iyer is the author of a dozen books, and his TED Talks have been viewed by millions. You'll often see his articles in the New York Times, and lately Pico's written two books about Japan, where he lives part of the year. One book is called Beginner's Guide to Japan, and the other is Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Firewalls. His website is picoiyerjourneys.com. P-I-C-O-I-Y-E-R, journeys.com. Tell us about your two latest books and, and what impact you hope they would have on, on the readers. Well, I deliberately, over the last 16 years, wrote two completely opposite books about my adopted home in Japan. And one of them is called Autumn Light. And it's meant to almost give you the sense of a Japanese neighborhood speaking directly to you. I'm quite invisible, I hope. And it's just about my life in a completely typical suburban neighborhood in Japan. The second book, which is called A Beginner's Guide to Japan, is the kind of thing a newcomer might say or think about Japan the day after she's arrived in Tokyo. In other words, it's lots of wild judgments and generalities and, and provocations, which are not necessarily right, but are starting points for inquiry and, and conversation. But it's very much the outsider looking back at Japan. 
Um, and I think everybody knows that when you feel deeply about somebody, whether it's a place or a person, you have lots of different feelings. And sometimes you're in your heart and you're right next to them, and sometimes you're in your head and you're thinking about them. And so I tried to do justice to both those sides of my relation to Japan, because part of me is inside this neighborhood for 26 years now. Another part will always be a foreigner. And I wanted each of those sides of me to have a voice to give, to open up very different aspects of Japan. Japan is your adopted home. Do you see yourself as kind of just squatting there, or are you a cultural chameleon? Is it a springboard for your your work and your travels, or are are you embracing the culture? Because you haven't learned the language in 30 years. (laughs) <laughs> no, not much. Uh, I know enough to get myself in trouble. I never speak English there, but my Japanese is quite rudimentary. I think it's both. For many years, it's been a perfect place to go and just write for months on end and disappear into a parallel universe in my imagination and write about Tibet and Iran and Cuba and other places. But I think now, more and more, I'm fascinated by Japan itself. It's the neighbor that I've been living next to for 32 years, and I want to find out who she is. So mm-hmm. it's both a springboard and an end in itself, and um, I never feel I'm going to get to the bottom of it, which is, I think, the main thing I would ask of any person or any place, to be bottomless and fathomless. Mm. And Japan certainly is that way. Just very briefly, for a visitor contemplating a trip to Japan, what's your advice on connecting with the culture experientially? Because, you know, you're going to have a list of bucket list kind of sites, but you've got to go beyond that in Japan. Yes, go to an izakaya, a typical kind of relaxed eating place and drinking place. You'll find the people very warm, especially as the evening goes on. Go to a baseball game. People you've never met before will throw their arms around you yeah. and hug you. And yes, in Japan, which is otherwise such a restrained place, uh, go to a convenience store. Uh, you will find things you never imagined. Go to McDonald's. You will find moon viewing burgers in September in honor of the great East Asian festival of the harvest moon. There's nothing that's uninteresting in Japan. And though much of it looks familiar to you, as soon as you go through the doors, you're in a different universe. So don't assume you just want to go to the sushi joints and just want to see the temples. Don't, don't bypass anything, I would say. That is, it, that's the key. Just find that slice of life experience. And it can be as simple as going to a, a sporting event. Pico Iyer is exploring our motivations for travel writing right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He writes about his adventures and observations and posts a schedule of his upcoming appearances at PicoIyerJourneys.com. Hey, um, I, I'm just really fascinated by the trajectory of travel writing. We talked about that a, a moment ago. And in so many ways, to me, you're like a monk at a carnival. Do you factor, <laughs> do you, do you factor in... Um, clickability when you write? I mean, you must be aware that if you, if you talk about certain things, you'll get more clicks because these days, in so many ways, it's about getting people to read you online. How do you deal with that as an ethical travel writer? Well, I must say, I try just to write about humanity and emotions. I'm not so aware of clicks. I've never used a cell phone in my life. I'm, I pretty much live um, offline as much as I can, the same way I did in the 1980s. And I feel that what people are really craving is something to release them from the clickbait world, to free them Mm. from data, Mm -hmm. to give them something deeper than information. And I remember when I began travel writing in the 1980s, I thought, I'll go to Tibet and Burma and I'll gather up all the sights and sounds for friends and readers in the United States who wouldn't get the chance to see those places. Mm -hmm. And now I feel that everybody listening to this show tonight in the palm of her hand can see places in Tibet I could never get to that 
we have these screens that give us a certain side of the world, but that travel writing therefore has to be much more interior and much more personal and more full of emotion and nuance and the things you can't get on a screen. And so actually I'd, I'd move away from where the clicks are because I think deep down that's what a reader is crying out for. She's mm -hmm. got plenty of clickable stuff in her life. She wants something spacious that's going to open her into a, onto a larger universe. And is that transformational? I mean, you hear that word among travel writers, you know, people aspire to, to make travel something that is transformational. Is that a good goal? I think so, yes. I often say I'm less interested in travel than in transport or in transformation or transcendence, all those trans words, because trans means you're going into somewhere else and somebody else, and you're coming back not the person who left home, and that's what you really want. Pico, somebody recently told me that uh, they, they heard that when you're on the road, you figure you're a nicer person. Is that true? Yes, I have written that. You're kinder, partly because you're liberated. If I'm walking down the street in Santa Barbara and a homeless person comes up to me with a hand extended, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I often say, oh, I have, I'm sorry, I have to be somewhere at three o'clock. I have a schedule. When I'm walking down the street in Mumbai or Port-au-Prince and somebody comes up, I don't have anywhere I have to be. I have to face that emotional and social psychological challenge. And I attend to the world around me in a way that I don't at home. I feel I sleepwalk through my days when I'm in a place that I think of as home. But abroad, all my senses are on and I'm trying to respond to everything around me. And I like that self. That's one reason I'm sure you travel and I travel. Pico Iyer, talking to you like good travel is transformational, and so is reading your books. Thank you so much for being with us, and best wishes with your work and your future travels. You too, Rick, and thank you for all that you give us with your travels. Thank you so much. We time travel next to relive the uncharted territory Antarctic explorers encountered, and in a bit, the first clash of cultures between Europe and India. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Ill-fated is an understatement to describe the grueling Antarctic expedition of the ship Belgica and her ragtag crew from Belgium back in the late 1800s. While polar fever gripped the world in a desire to conquer the bottom of the planet, the earliest explorers were astoundingly unprepared for the extreme conditions they'd have to endure. The crew of the Belgica found themselves as unwitting subjects in a harrowing human experiment when they were trapped for an entire sunless winter in one of the most hostile environments on Earth. Writer Julian Sancton set out on a years-long quest of his own to bring the Belgica's harrowing survival story back to life. He even went to the Antarctica himself to trace the ship's path. He's written a book called Madhouse at the End of the Earth, the Belgica's journey into the dark Antarctic night to describe what happened in 1897. Julian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so it's 1897 and the good ship Belgica sails south. What's the goal? And, and then just briefly to set the scene, what happens? Well, in the mid-1890s, all the geographic societies of the world, or at least the Western world, were in agreement that there was one region of the Earth that had been ignored for far too long, and that was Antarctica. And there were the good reasons there hadn't been a major expedition in almost 50 years, that's because it's the most, you know, forbidding, hostile environment on Earth. And it, it takes a, a certain kind of adventurer with a, a possible death wish to want to go down there. So even though many of the great seafaring nations were contemplating a, an Antarctic mission of their own, only one man actually got everything together to, to make it happen. And that was, of all places, Belgium which is quite surprising because Belgium did not have much of a seafaring tradition 
And this man who had raised his hand to lead the first uh, scientific expedition to Antarctica was not a particularly known quantity. His name was Adrien de Gerlache. He was uh, in his late 20s and uh, an aristocrat and had been obsessed with this idea of adventure and polar exploration from a very young age. And he managed to put everything together by the skin of his teeth. Well, was he driven by the, the passion for science or was this just a romantic uh, adventure for him? He was not a scientist himself, but he was smart enough to understand that science by the end of the 19th century had become a justification for exploration. Whereas in previous centuries, people might have been driven by uh, the promise of gold or by a uh, you know religious mission. In the 19th century, having conquered the known world, the Western powers now endeavored to understand it. And so science, uh, he understood the imperative of science well enough to couch this as a scientific mission. But he was a romantic and, at heart. Uh, and then this Gerlich got down there and everything went wrong. What, what was the disaster that struck? There were two missions that were at loggerheads with each other that were in conflict. One was that he wanted to conduct a thorough scientific expedition that required spending a lot of time in one place and studying things thoroughly. Uh, the other one was getting to the South Magnetic Pole, which was not, not the South Pole the way we think of it as the geographic pole, but the center of magnetic activity in the Southern Hemisphere. And that is, uh, that would have been something of a coup, a great exploit, but it was all the way on the other side of the continent from where they landed. So one imperative requires moving very slow. One imperative requires moving very fast. And he was not able mm. to square that circle. And so by the time he managed to make his way towards the South Magnetic Pole, the, the winter sea ice was already starting to set in. And he was faced with a dilemma, either return more or less empty-handed to Belgium with very little to show for his year's worth of exploration, or attempt a different kind of record, which was to uh, steer the ship into the ice, go as far south as possible in that region, and pretty much guarantee that they would be stuck in the ice and thereby guarantee that they would become the first men to endure a winter in the Antarctic. So that was their claim to fame. If nothing else, they endured a dark winter. And of course, just like uh, the North is the uh, land of the midnight sun, uh, the South would be the, the land of the, the midday darkness. Well, they both are, but at different times of year, they both are both. <laughs> they, yeah, uh, right. Only one man aboard had endured a month's long night, and that was uh, Frederick Cook, the one American on board, the ship okay, surgeon. Okay, because in your book, you talk about two officers that really became big players in the stories. There's an American doctor, Dr. Cook, and Roald Amundsen, who, he's the Norwegian first mate, and he eventually would become famous himself on his on his own expedition. They both would. In fact, I would say that one of them, uh, Cook becomes infamous and Amundsen becomes very famous. So what part do they play in the story? Well, to his credit, de Gerlache realized that he wanted to get the best men he could, not just Belgian men. And so it, it, it because there weren't many Belgian sailors worth their salt, he had to fill out the crew with the very capable Arctic seamen uh, of Norway. So half the crew was Norwegian. Then he was not able to secure a doctor. I think most there were a few doctors, but all of them either got fired or got cold feet before the expedition left Antwerp. Mm. And so he was forced to either leave without a surgeon at all or to accept an offer from a, a peculiar character named Frederick Cook, who had himself been on a few missions to the Arctic and had made a name for himself as a kind of a traveling showman, a mix between a serious scientific lecturer and P.T. Barnum. Well... 
if, if the Belgian doctors are getting cold feet before they even leave Antwerp, uh, they're not yeah. going to do very well down in Antarctica. So they get Dr. Cook. Yeah. And then you got these Norwegian hotshots and Amundsen. What was his claim to fame later? So he was, he from a very young age knew very well that he wanted to become the greatest polar explorer who ever lived. And later on, he would become the first man to blaze through the, the Northwest Passage, which had spelt the doom of many an explorer before him, and the first man to reach the South Pole. And if uh, what we now believe is true, which is that uh, neither of the previous claimants to the title of reaching the North Pole first, uh, Frederick Cook was one of them, and uh, Robert Perry was the next, it's now believed that both of those men lied about that. And so hmm. the first man to the North Pole as well would have been Roald Amundsen. So he's this mythic figure, larger than life, a okay. modern day Viking. Uh, and the Belgica story was kind of a coming of age moment for him. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is editor and writer Julian Sancton. He's reported from every continent, and now that includes Antarctica, which he first visited while researching his new book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night. We have links to Julian's work at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Julian, the, the Belgica's expedition was quite lavishly described in journals and so on, and, and you could have done your book without having to venture to Antarctica itself, but you figured that was necessary. What, why did you go to Antarctica, and what was it like for you just as a modern traveler there? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd, when I suggested to a friend of mine, an editor, that I intended to travel to Antarctica for this book, he said, well, why don't you just rely on the diaries? Why This is not a travelogue. This is not a first-person story. And I said, well, I need to be able to render this environment in three dimensions. You know, if I were just to rely on the photos that the men took there, I would be painting an, a landscape in black and white. Did When you got there, did it occur to you, like at a particular moment, that yes, to do this job well, I needed to come here firsthand and experience it. Uh, I think when I got my first whiff of a penguin rookery, I realized this is not something I would have been able to get from the diaries. It is a nauseating smell. It's like a, a garbage bag of seafood on a hot day. Uh, it's, it's just overpowering. At the same time, you've got these majestic, almost you know, Tolkien-like uh, mountains jutting straight out of the water as if the wa water line had risen up to the snow line of the uh, of the Himalayas, you know? Hmm. Um, and then, you, you know, you just see these pops of color everywhere from the enchanting turquoises of um, the submerged part of icebergs to the deep cobalt of caves that, are, that the sea digs into the ice. And then you get these little dots of crimson, which are the, the beaks of Gentoo penguins and, you know, little more subtle colors like the lichen on the rocks, and you just see all this magic up close. It, it really is something that I, I felt at that moment, well, I did right to come here. Whoa. The experience must have been pretty much the same for these guys as for you. Yeah, well, in some ways. Uh, well, f not all of them uh, were able to make the round trip. But, um, but I mean, the stinky penguins, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, the, the mountains yeah. coming out of the sea, the, the beautiful turquoise under the water. I told myself that uh, the penguins that I was seeing were very likely descendants of the penguins that they were seeing. In your book, you made vivid descriptions of the audacity, the, the intensity, the reckless leadership, the extreme weather. Paint a picture of what it was like when the good ship Belgica was actually locked up in that ice, in, in what you saw from the comfort of your expedition. But what did they experience in, in the darkest part of this miss, well, this madhouse at the end of the earth, to, yeah. to go back to the title of your book. Well, the 
the area that I visited was called the Gerlach Strait, named after the commander of the Belgicum. And this is a, a, along the western coast of the Antarctic Peninsula. And they spent two weeks there, the men of, of the expedition, it just in, in a blissful period, drunk on the joy of discovery. And it's only after that, when they left that area, that they got caught in the sea ice. So I didn't go there. Uh, I felt I was very happy to rely on the diaries to to <laughs> describe yeah. what it was like to be encased in ice for a year. But they, it was a quite a different landscape. It was sea ice only. It was it was uh, with a few exceptions, a few icebergs caught here and there in the pack ice. It was large, flat, gray, extended all the way to the horizon. It was almost like a Martian landscape. In fact, Cook compared it to Mars. He says, we're as isolated here as we would be on the surface of Mars. So what was the suffering, though? It was dark, it was cold, it was wet. Were they hungry? What What did they do? How did they survive this dark winter? Bizarrely, they weren't hungry so much. I mean, it wasn't so much the quantity of the food as the quality. And even though De Gerlache had provisioned the, the ship with the best quality of for the time of tinned food, it, they, the men became disgusted with the sameness, uh, both of the taste and the texture. And, the sameness. Uh, what a bunch of wimps! It you sounds like it, but this food. has been this has been confirmed <laughs> in, in in psychological uh, studies of, of uh, astronauts, of uh, polar personnel, research uh, station personnel. Is that right? That, they just go yeah. on strike against. I don't want another tin to dinner. Well, what it did, what it did was it compounded a more serious problem, which was a sense of uh, deep depression and uh, monotony and uh, fear and uncertainty. And on top of that, the one moment that you have to look forward to is mealtime when everybody gets together and, has, and, ah, and convenes. Yeah. And this ruined everything. It became a source of dread rather than a source of, of enjoyment. Because that would have been the, the one little release, the one little oasis of, of uh, comfort and, and camaraderie. Well, that, that goes back again, uh, Julian, to the title of your book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth. And you talk about this sort of interesting link between the obsession with polar exploration and insanity. I mean, that was apparently a big deal, an actual challenge for anybody leading an expedition like this. What is that well, insanity? You know, they were among the first to actually uh, spend any amount of time on Antarctic land. So they were filling a, a void in our knowledge. And up until then, that void had been filled with fiction. Uh, the likes of Edgar Allan Poe or Jules Verne or Arthur Conan Doyle or uh, at the other end of the world they, uh, in the Arctic, there were also plenty of stories. Uh, people were fascinated by the extremes of the earth and fiction authors drew a kind of a connection between the furthest recesses of the mind and the highest latitudes of earth. And so there was this almost literary trope that the Poles made people insane. Um, if uh, those authors invented that, the Belgica confirmed it. Well, and specifically, then, what did Captain Gerlach had to deal with uh, with his crew in that regard, and 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 how did that turn out? Right. Well, they didn't suffer simply from depression and from this sort of you know they they, they weren't just feeling low. You know they they were experiencing alarming physical symptoms. They were they were stricken with scurvy because their tinned food did not contain vitamin C. Uh, they were disoriented. They, they experienced what Cook called cognitive symptoms, cerebral symptoms. They had a very short attention span. They started becoming hostile, irritable. And let's not forget that there was a, a an infestation of rats. The rats seemed to be the only creatures enjoying themselves on this trip. And mm. that only increased the, the men's unease. And a few of the men actually lapsed into outright psychosis. 
so this was this was Cook's great challenge to not only treat the physical uh, symptoms but also the cerebral symptoms and deal with the uh, madmen on board. Julian Sanctons, our guest on Travel with Rick Steves, he recounts the epic survival story of one of the first polar expeditions to Antarctica in his book Madhouse at the End of the Earth. He includes historic photos from the book on his website juliansancton.com. So Julian, I still want to know vividly. How was it a madhouse, overrun with rats, uh, scurvy people fighting each other? What was it like for this crew to be trapped in this darkness with a lot of people cracking up? Well, for a long period, there was uh, no sense of light or day, which ruined uh, the the men's sleep patterns and the insomnia only contributed to the the fear and uh, and unease. Um, Keep in mind that you couldn't stray that far from the ship. So whatever peace of mind you think you could find by just going on a walk, for example, or having some exercise, you couldn't really do that because they, mm. they were this illusion of uh, solidity was just that, that the, the, the ice around them looked like land, but it was, as one, one of the men called it, a parody of terra firma. It was unreliable. Any misstep could send you straight under the ice and, and you would drown and die of hypothermia. And you could easily stray from the ship. And then if a fog were to blow in, you might walk right by the ship and lose and, and not even know it and you would be lost forever. So that created a real sense of alarm and of fear. But uh, to give you a few examples of how uh, insane these men became, one of them forgot how he even ended up there and uh, believed that uh, that he could make his way back to Belgium. He believed that he was mailing letters to his beloved when in fact he was putting letters into a, a mound of ice that to him looked like a mailbox and his uh, shipmates in order to i guess preserve his illusion would take the mail to make it seem as if it had been shipped um, and another one believed erroneously that he could uh, no longer hear nor speak in fact he hadn't lost the use of his ears or his vocal cords but his uh, his brain had been affected so with that going on and with the helpless feeling that you don't know if you're going to get through it and with some people yeah. losing their sanity and other people complaining about the monotonous food, what a madhouse that must have been. What's the takeaway that you want people to get from this book? Why does the story matter? I think it matters because it's a model of how to conduct exploration in a way that is divorced from conquest. I believe that Gerlach, for all of his faults, he was not a great leader of men. He was a great sailor, but not a great leader of men. But he didn't claim any land on behalf of Belgium or his king as he could have. He uh, he didn't insist that it be only Belgians on board, that it be some nationalistic endeavor. And he didn't try to extract any resources. Uh, this was all for science. And this stood as a model uh, for future exploration to Antarctica and also a, a precursor to the signing of the Antarctic Treaty of 1959. And that treaty, which stipulates that uh, there can be no military activity on Antarctica, that it's it's a zone of peaceful international scientific cooperation, that treaty in turn has inspired international cooperation in space. And so I believe that the this is a crucial precedent for, for spatial exploration. Uh, and not only that, uh, the experience of the Belgian, and particularly the contributions of the Dr. Frederick Cook, have been studied very closely by NASA, among other agencies, for the lessons that it can impart in uh, designing long-duration missions to space. Because, you know, let's face it, Antarctica at the end of the 19th century was to civilization what Mars is to us today. And so it, it still has plenty of lessons to yield. 
That is fascinating how those lessons can apply so clearly to today. The book is Madhouse at the End of the Earth. Thanks, Julian. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Our next stop on our travel writing journey takes us back 500 years, when a tall, yellow-haired European who called himself the Mogul of Love arrived at the court of Emperor Akbar in India. It's how Salman Rushdie imagines the earliest contacts between the Eastern and Western worlds in his novel, The Enchantress of Florence. He explains how his work is based on years of historical investigation to get at the heart of the people he writes about. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. It's not often you find an extensive bibliography in a work of fiction. As we explore the art of travel writing today on Travel with Rick Steves, what better time to dip into our show archives to hear from one of our era's most talked-about authors, Sir Salman Rushdie. He invested seven years researching the characters and situations in his novel, The Enchantress of Florence. Mr. Rushdie joined us on Travel with Rick Steves when his book was first released to tell us about the historic fantasy he created. It centers on a woman trying to take control of her destiny in a male-dominated world. The setting revolves around the collision of history and cultures, both real and imagined, between Renaissance Europe and 16th-century Mughal India. Mr. Rushdie, thanks for being here. Hello there. Nice to talk to you. Enchantress of Florence. Now, this book brings together the Mughal capital, and that's Muslim India in its zenith, and Renaissance Florence at its peak. We know we know about Renaissance Florence, most Americans, but Mughal India is kind of a mystery. How would you give us a, a picture of what Mughal India was like when we know Michelangelo and Botticelli were doing their thing in Florence? Well, what's interesting is that this was also a kind of golden age across the world in India. It was also a time of artistic renaissance. In fact, much of what one now thinks of as the greatest Indian painting of the classical period was being done during the reign of the Emperor Akbar, who's a major character in the novel. It was also a time of great philosophical inquiry, just as it was in Renaissance Florence, and, and a time in which the emperor himself was prompting and, and demanding a whole new evaluation of religion and of culture and of society. And, and so in, in very interesting ways, the two worlds mirror each other. They were both uh, pinnacles, if you like, of, of the history on the one hand of Europe and on the other hand of India. So they knew that they were having their renaissances or that they were flourishing. Yes, that's right, although they didn't know each other. I mean, that's the thing. Huh. We're talking about a period in which there was almost no contact between the East and the West. It was just beginning to happen. Now, that's quite a stretch then to weave a story that ties them together quite intimately. Yeah, but that's the kind of the novelistic fun, isn't it, to try yeah. and find a way of making the thing happen that never happened. Uh, I mean, if you go 100 years later, there's lots of contact, but at this moment... I thought what I was looking at, really, if you like, was the beginning, the very beginning of the cultural engagement between the East and the West, which now, of course, is a big subject. It's very timely now. Anything in this book that's going to get people mad at you? <laughs> <laughs> no, not unless they don't like this kind of thing. <laughs> that's good. You know? I mean, I find when people write about my work that I don't get an awful lot of so-so reviews. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, I, if I'm getting marks out of 10, I either get kind of 11 out of 10 or I get <laughs> minus 1 out of 10. <laughs> I, I tell you, I got, I got into the book, and on page three, your, your description of the caravanserai just got me hooked. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, this, this sort of fantasy world, it's not that big of a stretch. I mean, it's, it's easy to believe that it really was that way. If you can paint us a picture of a, of a caravanserai back in the 16th century. Well, a, well, a caravanserai is basically the place where journeys began and ended. So it was, I guess, like you know, the place where if, if you were a traveler, if you were a merchant, you'd go there to equip 
your beasts of burden, you know, your camels and your elephants, you'd get everything they needed. So there were chandleries and, and they, also there were hostelries where you could get a yeah. cheap bed on the roof. You know, a lot of people in India, because it's hot, sleep out of doors. So these were positioned a day's camel hike apart from India all the way to Europe or something. Is that right? That's right. Well, they, exactly. They were they were like uh, staging, posts, staging posts on long journeys. Yeah. And, and people going on these long journeys, I mean, for example, down the Silk Route, these would be the invaluable places where you could refresh yourself and rest and get your animals to be rested and taken care of and, and buy and sell the things that you needed. Plus functioning as the blogosphere or the internet of the age, I suppose. Absolutely, no question. It was the place where information was exchanged. And that's where history became mystical and woven together, I would imagine. Well, it's all, it's all story, isn't it? The interesting yeah. thing is you're living in a period in which it was very hard to have any kind of independently verified information. You know, if a man comes to town and says, this is who I am, and this is my family background, and this is what I do, you kind of have to decide if you believe him or not, because there's no way of verifying it. You know, you can be whoever you say you are, if you can make it stick. So your writing has often been called magical realism. I would imagine that's the kind of history that was being woven in those caravanserais. Well, I think it's very interesting. The world of the 16th century, again, both in Europe and in India, and everywhere in between, was a world that deeply believed in magic. You know, they believed in the existence of magic, the reality of magic, and the and the use of magic in absolutely in their everyday lives. You know, so, you know, if you fell in love with a girl and you wanted her to fall in love with you, the, you would obviously go and get a love potion. Um, <laughs> if you had a business rival whose projects you wished to fail, you'd try and go get a hex put on him. Wow. You know, and, and people used witchcraft in the way that maybe we use medicine, you know, but the fact is that it was a, it was a time in which, if you like, the magical and the realistic were not considered to be separate entities. They were all part of the same continuum in the same world. The whole notion of an enchantress is a little bit mm -hmm. foreign to a lot of people. What is an enchantress? I suppose it's, it's another word for a sorceress or witch. And one of the things that happened in this period in the Renaissance was the, the growth of the idea that beautiful women might also possess occult powers, which harks back to classical Greece, I have to say, because the Greeks also believed this. The Greeks had many witches in their imagination, like Circe, of course, who enchanted Ulysses on his journeys. Um, the Renaissance, in many ways, harks back to that classical period and again becomes fascinated by this idea of beauty and sorcery as being huh. linked. As we explore travel writing on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're revisiting a conversation we had with Salman Rushdie when he released his novel, The Enchantress of Florence. He posts to Twitter at Salman Rushdie and has recently started previewing new material digitally on Substack.com. Um, Mr. Rushdie, I've read that you think that um, reading the Kama Sutra is good foreplay for your new book. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, well, no, it's just, you know, when you're studying the past, it's relatively easy to study the political history. It's relatively easy to find out what happened and who the king was and where the battles were and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't take that long right. to get that stuff up. The thing that's harder and actually more necessary for a novel is to find out how people thought and to find out the details of everyday life that would bring the past to life. And of course, one of the things that you find in India in, in this period um, are these compendiums of sexual delight, you know, which, which uh, there's not just the Kama Sutra. The Kama Sutra is only one of at least three major compendiums that were written uh, during this period, which were all about 
um, you know, how to have fun. Was that unique to India? Was was Europe kind of uh, lagging behind in that regard? I, I've not come across similar compendiums in Europe. Because you had those medieval love uh, Ovid kind of things, you know. But yes, was... but they weren't. But they weren't explicit. They no. weren't explicit. The, right. the Kama Sutra is nothing if not explicit. <laughs> but I mean, in the end, you've got to make the past convincing, you know. And right. I think uh, often you find these these small things, as I say, are the things which really bring the past back as if it were here now. If you find out. I mean, for instance, what kind of terms of endearment did people use towards each other? If people got cross with each other, what terms of abuse did they use for each other? You know, if they were rich, what did they eat? If they were poor, what did they eat? What kind of clothes did they wear? Yeah, these are real people. This is the stuff that brings the past back. You mentioned your professor said you should never write history until you can hear the people speak. This was a a wonderful professor at Cambridge when I was there called Arthur Hibbert, who was a himself a historian of the Middle Ages, a wonderful historian of medieval Europe, and had the most remarkable gift when talking to make you actually see how people lived and walked around and what they said to each other and how they thought. And in many ways, he was a great imaginative artist too. And I've always remembered him and tried to live up to that principle. Beautiful principle. You have to take a few liberties then because you can't affirm that your hunch is exactly right. But yeah, just, no, of course you do. It makes it do. fun, and, and why not? Mr. Rushdie, I noticed you picked India and Italy as the two settings for the new mm-hmm. novel. Those happen to be my two favorite countries. Oh, that's nice. And one reason I like India so much, which is where you're from, is that it really shook up all my self, my cultural self-confidence and self-assuredness and my ethnocentrism. I thought I knew what music was. I thought I knew what time was and love and pain. Go to India, mm-hmm. and they rewrite the book. It rearranges all your furniture. Any thoughts I'm on that? glad to hear you say it. I do think for people who have never been to India that a first visit is an extraordinarily intense experience. I mean, it's, an, it's a very sensual place, India, so it's an assault on all your senses. You know, the field of vision is very crowded. It's very noisy. It smells a lot. And it also, it, it kind of blows your mind because, it, as you say, the way in which people have thought and felt and expressed themselves there is is not only very different from you know from the american way if you like but also you know extraordinarily engaging and involving and i i find when people go to western people americans go to india they have again a very extreme response to it that a lot of people love it and can't get enough of it and go back all the time yeah. and and other people can't stand it and run and I'm a tour guide, and it's one place I would not want to take a group because it's such a personal thing to go to India. You've got to have your own voyage of discovery there. But there's a lot of suffering and a lot of uh, misery, but at the same time, you have a billion people living out their lives. And to me, they have a knack of enjoying joy and, and love in a bulk kind of way where it's just a, a festival of, of life. I think that's very well said. I think that's exactly right. You, you find yourself enchanted by Florence particularly. My relationship with Florence began when I was at college. I went and spent a summer there, a summer when I was really, really broke. And I was trying to stay as long as I could, so I had to stretch my funds out as far as they could go. So it was often a, a choice between eating a pizza or an ice cream because there wasn't enough money to do both on the same day. Right. I, I spent that summer there really being enchanted, I suppose, by the art and the architecture and the history of Florence. And I've been back a few times since, and it's always seemed to me like a place that I would like in some way to write about. I never quite knew mm. how or when or if, but I, I guess I finally found the way. Weren't you there during the 66 flood? I was there just after. Just after, so that must just have been a heart-wrenching time. Very difficult time to see the city so so wounded, you know. 
And I think in a way, it's one of the reasons why I came to feel so deeply about it, because I saw it in this very mm. uh, you know, sad moment of being so damaged. It's covered with mud. Incredibly beautiful place, yes, with mud everywhere. And with you would walk into, like, for example, if you walked into the great church of Santa Croce um, and looked at the paintings hanging on the wall, oh. you could literally see a watermark about a foot and a half up from the bottom of the picture, and everything below that that line of water was smudged and blurred, mm. and everything above it was still a Renaissance masterpiece. And the whole world of art lovers came together to help out, didn't they? Yes, indeed, and the restoration has been sensational. I mean, if you go back to the same church now and look at the same pictures hanging there, you can't see where that flood damage was. Where, where do you go to be enchanted by Florence today? Well, well, I remember certain things that I used to do. I mean, I used to go sit in the Piazza della Signoria. I used to go sit on the steps of the uh, of the Bargello and sketch. I mean, I did quite a lot of sketching. Just, yeah. I mean, just just for fun. And I would just sit there and and, and try and sketch the great sculptures that were in the square in the, and, oh, yeah. and and the square itself, and watch the life of the city. Salman Rushdie has written fourteen novels to date, often dealing with magical realism and social history. Our conversation was recorded when he wrote The Enchantress of Florence. He's also just released a collection of non-fiction essays called Languages of Truth. We have links to Salman Rushdie's work with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Now, your books deal with the societies and cultures head-on confrontation or head-on connection, and it, it carbonates one's existence when you can actually meld these things together. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of pleasure in it, you know, and I think one of the things that I found writing The Enchantress of Florence was just how much fun it was to bring these worlds together, you know, to try and evoke this really, the rich tapestry of the past and full of stories I wouldn't have dared to make up and to bring those stories into collision with each other and to create by doing so yet another story, my story was just the most fun. And as I say, there were things I couldn't possibly have dreamt of, for instance, (laughs) There's a moment when this Indian princess is going west across, at this particular point, the Ottoman-Turkish world. And doing the reading for it, I discovered, to my enormous delight, that at this precise moment, the Ottomans had just been fighting a war against Dracula. You know, I mean, actual Dracula, Vlad Dracul, Vlad right. the Dragon, Vlad the Impaler. And uh, at the moment at which I realized I could have Dracula in my novel, you know, well, I just felt that I'd gone to heaven, you know. Um, and so, so there he is. There's a little little guest appearance by Dracula in the novel. Of course, he wasn't a vampire. <laughs> uh, um, that's the thing that Bram Stoker made up in in his novel Dracula. He wasn't even the Prince of Transylvania, which is what we all think he was. He was the Prince, in fact, of the other province of Romania, um, which is Wallachia. He may not have been a vampire, but he certainly was. He was so bloodthirsty that a little a little vampirism would have come as light relief, frankly. That would have been a, a, a real blessing as you're putting the pieces together for your book to, to be able to weave yeah, that there in. there he is. And that's one of the joys I felt in reading through it is all of a sudden something flies in from another corner of the world. And yeah. it's realistic because there are these connections. Yeah, it was a really interesting world. You spent seven years researching this. Yeah, but I wasn't just full-time. I was writing two other books at the time as well. Right. But in my spare time, I was kind of reading myself in to the world of the of the past. And it makes it sound like hard work when you say seven years researching, yeah. but actually it was enormously enjoyable. Now, when you write a book like this, of course, you're interested in selling books and, and, and getting mm. the royalties. But what is another motive that you have? What, what do you hope people get out of this? Well, I mean, I'm just trying to look at how individuals um, deal with their lives and to what extent they 
are able to face up to and shape the great events against which they live. So that subject of the collision between history and the individual and that interaction between the great sphere of public events and the small intimate sphere of private life, you know, that's been something I've always been interested in. That conflict between private life and public life, I think that's been my subject. And in, in this particular case, as I say, I felt that I was writing about the moment at which the East and the West first encountered each other. You know, I mean, 50 years before the period I'm writing about, nobody in India had ever heard of Europe. Nobody from Europe had ever been to India. So we're, we're looking at the moment at which these two great worlds, the world of the East and the world of the West, first really came into contact with each other and began to engage with each other and to make out what they thought of each other. And of course, since we now live in this age when there is such a complicated engagement between East and West, I thought it would be very interesting to go look at the beginning of it. Sometimes you look at the beginning of something, it gives you some clues for why the future turned out as it did. And a lot of people who are raised ethnocentrically, they, they never have the openness to appreciate the wisdom or the wealth of experience from another part of the world. And given the big challenges confronting us right now, it's a, it's a lost opportunity, isn't it, to not open your eyes to the other cultures in this planet? Absolutely. And I think it's one of the great things that the novel can offer readers is that because the novel works through human beings and their, and their feelings and needs and so on, readers can, by identifying with and, and, and wanting to know about those characters, they can enter into worlds which are very remote from their own world and be made to feel that they understand that world. You know, it doesn't even have to be the past. I mean, I was reading about America long before I ever came yeah, to the United yeah. States, and it gave me the sense that I knew something about it. Been speaking with Salman Rushdie, the author of The Enchantress of Florence. Uh, a reoccurring phrase in your book, which I think is fascinating, is the curse of the human race is not that we are so different, but that we are so alike. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that we're all members of the same species and we all think and feel and react the same way. But in the novel, it's, it's kind of said slightly tongue-in-cheek, that, that remark, because it's pretty obvious what the differences are. You know, we can see the very large picture of how different the East and the West are in terms of religion and culture and history and background and social observance and so on. But the thing that I found over and over again, looking at the histories of these two worlds and trying to bring them together, was how much, in fact, they did have in common. I mean, as I say, these were times when both cultures were going through a period of great intellectual and philosophical inquiry and, and rethinking, you know, and, and in many ways, the modern world and the ideas of the modern world were being shaped and born at this time, both in the East and the West. They were both cultures at a real pinnacle of artistic achievement in all the arts, music, poetry, painting, architecture. And even at this kind of social level, they were very hedonistic worlds. You know, both the worlds mirrored each other in this, in this kind of sensual way as well. Yeah, well, speaking to all the travelers who are listening to us now, I'll tell you, reading Salman Rushdie's The Enchantress of Florence is a wonderful travel adventure. Mr. Rushdie, thank you so much for joining us, and, and best wishes. Thank you very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks for studio help to the Radio Foundation in New York and KUOW in Seattle. Find out more about our guests and listen to interview extras at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe, too, this is 
four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.